Welcome back to Gemini Placements. This is not an astrology podcast. Today, this is Goop for the Neurodivergent. Welcome back. There's no Gwyneth Paltrow, just me, Sam, and our special guest, Maya. Hi, Maya. <laughs> Maya is, uh, is a fellow Gemini. I say as the imposter with no Gemini placements, but um, Maya is a personal trainer and coach, and she is here today to help us get our shit together so you can all witness our fitness get fucking prison ripped during this lockdown and this retrograde season. We're going to show y'all how it's done. But before we start this episode, guys, I just want to put a light content warning. Obviously, we are going to be talking about food, nutrition, exercise, diet, stuff like that. I hope you know us well enough by now to know that, you know, we approach all these things from a very positive mindset and it's never our intention to trigger anybody, but these are all sensitive subjects. We all have different relationships with this stuff. So if this content is not for you today, we're not offended. If you click away, we have 10 other episodes for you to enjoy. And uh, today we're going to kick off episode one of season two. And if the editing is awkward, it's because we're too cheap to pay for a Zoom plan because we have no jobs. Well, me and Sam, Maya has a job. (laughs) Uh, A a dramatically reduced job as well. She's, you know, she's in the personal fitness industry and they've also been rammed with... (laughs) <laughs> shit I don't know I'm so bad with words these days I'm like the, lo- the lo- less I have less time I spend working the more time I just like continue to like devolve into a, a less of a person I'm like I don't know how to talk to you guys anymore <laughs> that's okay it's it's that's perfect reason to have a podcast <laughs> <laughs> so help me be able to speak again for real so Maya, tell us a little bit about what you do and how um, how you found yourself in the fitness space. Yeah, so I've been a personal trainer for over 10 years at this point, and I started training when I was in college and I went to school for that. Um, after I graduated from hairdressing school, which is how I know Sam, and I decided I didn't want to do that anymore. So I was kind of going through my own personal uh, journey with fitness at that point. And I was like, you know what? I really like this. And I actually thought I was going to be a yoga instructor for the longest time. Um, But then I discovered that I liked strength training so much more. And so I really wanted to help other women find that for themselves and like, I guess, find their own strength and to get the benefits of strength training, which so many women are kind of um, discouraged from pursuing. And so that's what I do. I mostly work with women. A lot of them who are just regular people. A lot of them are lawyers, actually. Um, so they, they have no athletic background, most of them. But, uh, you know, I help them it, like improve their fitness and quality of life. And that's what I do. How fucking cool is that? And of course, I had a peep at Maya's birth chart. I was like, send it to me. And it's so it's so cute. It's so fitting. Maya, you're a Gemini sun. Libra rising and the Scorpio moon and your Mars and your Venus are in Leo. Uh, If anyone is into tarot, Leo is represented by the strength card of the major arcana. So you're just like meant to, you know, enter this world and be strong yourself and make other people stronger while being, you know, kind of extroverted and level headed, but like a little spicy with that Scorpio moon. So I automatically um, just like you from that birth chart. So we're going to have a good fucking time today, aren't we, Sam? Hell yeah. (laughs) I like, I'm like trying to, you know, get my shit together. And it's funny after we had um, our meeting call, 
about making this episode, my mom called me like less than an hour after and was like, Anya, you need to come help me. Your grandmother's been doing all the cooking. My mom and grandma live together. My little Ukrainian grandma's been, you know, my mom is like, I'm now pre-diabetic. I'm obese. (laughs) I have hypertension. I have high cholesterol. Like help me. So, uh, so this is uh this is generational stuff we're doing today. And I think that is the case with a lot of people's, you know, eating habits uh or even just their mindset, right? It is a generational thing. Um everybody you know, they we take on our opinions of, of you know certain kinds of foods or the way that, you know, we should eat and that sort of thing um from our our families. And uh I feel like that's yeah. just something that everybody kind of is you know, sometimes, I mean, depending on how you were raised, sometimes there was a lot of unlearning you have to do as well. Um, or, or for instance, like, I mean, just based off of whatever your socioeconomic situation was growing up, you know, you might've had to eat a specific way because that was just what the family could afford and that sort of thing too. Right. And all those things are factors in our eating habits. Um, absolutely. I think that's interesting that you brought that up too, because, um, we also learn like how we relate to our body and our body image from our parents too, right? Especially usually the parent that you share your uh, gender with. So like if you're a girl, probably your mother. Um, And you're reminding me like when I was a kid, my mom, we always had like diet foods in our house because my mom was very fixated on being thinner and smaller because she gained a lot of weight during uh, pregnancy from like her pre children body. Um, so she was always very fixated on that. And I remember going to like Weight Watchers meetings with my mom when I was like seven years old and I'd be there and they'd all like weigh in on the scale together and like talk about how good or bad they were doing each week. It's very weird. And it's really like, if you look at the trajectory of your life and like the relationships that you have with food and your body and exercise, like a lot of it you can find will probably stem from your childhood too, of course. For sure. And Maya, you're, uh, you're from uh, a similar part of the world as me. You're uh, Serbian. I'm Ukrainian. Yes. On the other side of the sea. <laughs> exactly. But our, our, our people do have a natural camaraderie because we're like the other Europe, you know, yeah. <laughs> I call us the Euro trash Europe. We're, we're ghetto Europe. We own it. We love it. We wear our track suits with pride. No one else can call us that, but let's be real. <laughs> We can squat. Yeah. If someone else calls me Euro trash, I'm going to be really mad, but I will call myself that proudly. (laughs) Right. I'm the same. And I think our culture, there's a a lot of uh, rich food, right. And like a scarcity mentality that comes to food um, and a high emphasis on diet culture. Like when you were talking about your mom, I was like, check, check, check. There was always fucking slim fast in my cupboard as a kid. (laughs) Like, I think you're absolutely right. We all just kind of picked that up from our parents. And I think just, just, I think a lot of women and just a lot of people in general are pressured to go on some kind of cleanse or diet to like jumpstart their fitness. Like we're always fucking sold something to start our journey. And I think it can be kind of almost disempowering sometimes. Like, would you agree? Yeah, absolutely. Um, on one point on that note, you just reminded me of something. I'm going off on a tangent, but please get me back on track. We love tangents here. We love a tangent. Um, you have to think about it too. Like so much of like diet marketing and stuff like that is marketed towards women also because of like our position in society. Right. So because like women are not as valued economically, it's going to be much more competitive, especially, especially for like straight women, let's say 
Because if you're more beautiful, if you fit the conventional beauty standard, you're more likely to get a job, but also like you're more likely to get a mate, maybe one who can support you. So if you're not earning as much, like even if you're not like consciously thinking about that, that is in the back of your subconscious at the same time, like, okay, like I need to survive. So what things can I do to make myself more attractive? Because I have to compete with these other people to make sure that I can get through this, right? Because like a lot of women, unfortunately, do not make enough money to be on their own and support themselves, right? So I think that pressure is always going to be harder on marginalized people than it is on someone who is not, right? It's so true. It's like we're fucking birds of paradise or something, you know, (laughs) dancing for a mate. So would you say it's ever a good idea to start your like wellness journey with like a cleanse or an elimination diet or anything like that? Like, is it like a hard no or sometimes okay? What would you say as an expert? I'd say for like 95% of people, it's a hard no. Um, There might be like a small percentage of people who are like that little extreme start is going to be very motivating for them and help them get going. But for the majority of people, that's going to set them up for a cycle of like binging and restricting and stuff like that. Because again, cleanses, detoxes are super restrictive. You're going to get a really quick result from that. And then as soon as you stop that, you're going to lose that result. Right. So essentially you're going to backslide to say that in air quotes. Um, and then you're going to have to repeat that cycle all over again. So I find if you start with something extreme, you're setting yourself up to repeat that pattern over and over rather than making like a slow, gradual change where you start with something small. And then once you're like, okay, you know what? I got this. Like, what else can I add to make myself feel better? Right. Yeah. It's like, it would be overwhelming, right. To like, you're like, I, I do this cleanse and then now I have to just cold Turkey, completely change everything about my life because I've now like, I've done the cleanse. So this is the start. And then the moment you fail, then you're just like, well, fuck it. And the whole thing goes out the window and you, you're back to like ordering McDonald's three times a week or something. Right. Like, yeah, absolutely. It's totally like that. Yeah. And I, I think with juice cleanses and stuff like that, they're marketed to like give your digestive system a break and to heal and to like give your kidneys a break and stuff like that. Do they need a fucking break, bro? No, not at all. Your, your kidneys and livers, they need water. That's fine. Like, I don't know if you drink a lot of alcohol, maybe like cut that back a little bit, but you don't have to stop cold Turkey. I also find it interesting too, because a lot of like cleanse diets, um, will typically call for like really high fiber content. There's nothing wrong with fiber per se, but like eating a lot of fiber will like tear up your gut as well. Yeah. And that's something I think a lot of people don't realize, uh, right? Like you kind of have to introduce fiber slow. Do you have to introduce it slowly into your diet? Like I eat crazy fiber because I've been vegan for 16 years, guys. So I'm just like a shitting machine. But <laughs> but I think if someone who eats like a more standard North American diet were to start automatically eating what I eat, they probably just like have like nonstop gas. Oh, for sure. They definitely would. And like, again, like not everybody can handle that much fiber either. Like if I have too much fiber in my diet, things go wrong. Like So everybody has like a sweet spot where they're going to be good, but you definitely be better if you gradually build up rather than going from like zero to like all of the fiber. Right. And is that how like somebody would be able to figure out kind of where their benchmark, I guess, is for, I guess, different kinds of nutrients? Like, you know, how would somebody knows they need to incorporate fiber, but they don't know exactly how much for them personally, um, or, you know, any other kind of nutrient you would, I guess, would it be suggested you just very slowly, gradually 
start increasing the amount and just monitor how your body's reacting over time? Yeah, I think um, like most people in general, like a safe bet is if you have like a pretty equal breakdown of macronutrients, like carbs, fats, and protein, like that'll be safe for almost anyone to have like an equal breakdown in terms of what's optimal for each individual. That's going to vary a lot. You'll know when you're eating, like how it's impacting you. Are your energy levels good? Can you have like, can you go a few hours, like, let's say like four to five hours without eating. And you're like, Oh, you know what? Like I'm good. I don't need to eat right now. Like you're satisfied. I think that would be a good indicator if you're eating like enough of the right nutrients. Cause like, I know for myself, like I love eating carbs, like but if I eat like two pieces of bread and just like nothing else with it, I can eat a whole loaf of bread. Like I could eat two pieces of bread, like every 30 minutes for like a whole day. And I'll be like, Oh, you know what? I could literally eat like 6,000 calories of bread. And I'll be like, Oh, like I'm not full at any point, but I've had way more energy than my body actually needs to sustain me. Right. So those are things to think about. Um, so you're going to look at, again, your energy level and like your appetite and hunger and how those things are. And like, are they actually sustaining you? So what, this is also news to me. I'm like, wait, so I'm not just supposed to want to eat all day long. Um, so like, <laughs> um, so would you say like an ideal kind of situation is that for like the, the, the average amount of exercise a person does or average amount of work a person does in a day, um, you want to feel satiated for a good four to five hours after a meal? Yeah, I would say four hours is pretty good. Like if you're really struggling, like like in under four hours, like let's say if like by the two hour mark, you're like starving, that could be indicative of something like pre-diabetes or diabetes or other hormonal issues. Or again, like you're just lacking a balanced profile of nutrients in your diet to actually give you the energy to get through and keep going. Interesting. Yeah, I never thought of it that way, but that is such a good way to observe how you're feeling is how full you're getting. And like I've made some small changes because in, in my diet and exercise recently where I've started to have a really high protein breakfast, like you guys saw me chug it straight out of the blender when we're getting ready for this, but I have about 42 grams of protein in this smoothie, um, plant-based and I like feel so good. And I do feel full for about a good four to five hours after, which never used to happen to me because I used to have just a fruit smoothie with lots of bananas and whatever. I wouldn't put protein powder. So it was just like a very high carb, high sugar. And I would feel really full and bloated from all the fiber. And then within an hour I was ravenous. And I just thought, oh, it's because it's cold. Maybe I need something warm. You know, we never think about those things, but I think just the the macros are off and I wasn't like anchoring in my food in the morning. And I really struggled with that for a long time. Yeah. I mean, I think too, like the nutrients that are going to be most satiating in terms of your appetite are going to be like protein and uh, fat. Like those are going to keep you fullest the longest because they're the slowest to digest. So carbs, we do absolutely need them, but they're not necessarily going to fill you up for a long period of time. Well, I want to talk about carbs a little bit because I think anybody who starts their journey, like so many people are automatically like, I have to cut out carbs. I eat too many carbs. Do you find that most people even know what a carb actually is? Uh, No, (laughs) generally no. (laughs) Uh, Carbs are in everything. And so people think like bread is a carb. Yes, there are carbs in bread, but like there are also carbs in fruit. Like they're everywhere. So like people be like, I'm not eating carbs. And they'll be like eating a banana. And I'm like, well, that's full of carbs, but that's okay. (laughs) Like, um, it's, yeah, it's just interesting. But I think there's so much misinformation and like wrong information out there on nutrition in general that 
you know, it can be very confusing for a lot of people. I think with keto and paleo being so popular right now, carbs are really getting a bad rap again. You know, I feel like we go through cycles or fat is bad and carbs are bad. Salt is bad. Then sugar is bad. So we're in the bad carb iteration of diet culture right now. Would you say? Yeah, absolutely. And again, it's so interesting. Like you're saying, like people don't know what a carb is because people will be like, I'm doing keto, whatever. That's your choice. If you're going to do that, I don't agree with it, but (laughs) do what you want. (laughs) No, we could, we could talk shit about keto. We're not, we're here. here. (laughs) But you're just like, you're like, you know, that's your choice. You made that your life so passive aggressive. I'm like, that's basically my reaction to I'm like, oh, you're keto. Cool. So we can't be friends. <laughs> People will be doing keto and uh, they'll be like eating an apple. I'm like, well, if you're eating apples, you're not actually going to be in a like a ketosis state anyways. Cause it, like you can't eat carbs when you're doing keto and fruit have carbs in them. And so does like vegetables. So like a true keto diet is literally like meat and fat and like, that's it. And it's actually not healthy for most people. Um, and I think people also forget like keto was created to help people have epilepsy, like to help them stop having seizures. Like that's what it's intended for. It's not a survive, like it's a survival state for your body to be in keto. It's not something that's going to help you thrive and feel amazing, but because people usually go from having such terrible dietary practices before they start something like keto, when they switch it, they're like, wow, I feel so good. And it's, well, you took all of this other stuff out that was not helping you and you replaced it with something else. But if you actually had like more variety of other, like better things in there would help you even more. I can't imagine that like being sustainable, first of all, but second of all, like good for you long-term because we were just talking about fiber. Like you don't really get any fiber then if you're just eating fat and protein. Yeah. So it's really common for people who do the keto diet. And this actually happened to me and it's, uh, I did keto like a really long time ago when I was in college and it had horrible uh, side effects for me. And part of the reason why I don't recommend it for most people, um, I started getting chest pains because hmm. like, again, like it's so high in fat. A lot of people, when they start doing it, their cholesterol goes up. They start having cardiovascular issues that they never had before. And I never got tested, but I'm like, okay, like I shouldn't be having chest pains. Like I'm literally like 21 years old. Like there's no reason that I should be experiencing this right now. Um, but it's really common. Lots of doctors who work with uh, patients who've done like keto diets report that happening all the time. So there's not enough fiber in it. There's too much fat and it's just so imbalanced. Like it's not going to help you. And then then also like I, you know, the, the other problem with it is because it's not a sustainable, like a long-term sustainable thing for, for, you know, the majority of the people who do it, you lose all this weight immediately from, from meeting keto. And then you realize you can't maintain it. And then you gain all that weight back. And then again, you're just, you know, it's another kind of like soul crushing thing. You're like, fuck, I'm back to square one again. And I just did all that work and it basically just got washed down the drain. Yeah. So the thing about that, that happens with almost any type of restrictive diet. And then the more times you go through that cycle, um, are you familiar with set point theory? No, no. So set point theory is that everybody's body has like a state, like a weight range where it's like most optimal for your health and where you feel good. And that's the right weight for you, whatever that is, it's very individual. But the more times you go through that diet process of like 
losing weight and gaining weight, the higher and higher your set point keeps getting because it keeps thinking, oh, my body keeps going through this period where I'm starving. So your body's like, okay, we need to hold on to more energy, more resources for these starvation periods that we're going to go through. So your set point moves higher and higher and you'll actually lose more muscle over time and change your body composition. So it has lower muscle and like a higher body fat percentage. Wow. I didn't know that. That's incredible. But that makes so much sense as being uh, a side effect of yo-yo dieting, as they used to call it back on Monday. Oh, we still call it that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I, we touched on this briefly, but I, I went the other way. Uh, You, you tried keto in your early twenties. I, and Sam witnessed this. So Samantha be my witness. I went through a phase of being high carb, low fat vegan and like doing raw till four veganism, which was really popular and like YouTube and social media. And that's the thing people think all plant-based eaters eat the same, but it's like crazy different. And there's like diet fads and bullshit in that too. It's not naturally holistic in any way. Um, So I was eating a super high carb diet, mainly consisting of fruit little to no fat and little to no protein. (laughs) And I thought that was going to give me abs. (laughs) I mean, freely the banana girl would have you believe that because that girl was the size of a pencil stick and all she ate was bananas. So I mean, it wasn't all your fault. (laughs) How many bananas did you see me eat, Sam? I mean, I feel like you would bring about a bushel a day to work. Um, so however many is in the average bushel, I'm going to say at least maybe six a day during work because, and maybe it was only six because like, that's all you had time to eat because you were being worked so much, <laughs> like in the, the brief moments of a client processing, you're like, let me just, just like down a banana real fast. Well, speaking of diet culture and, you know, women, and like watching each other eat and stuff like that. You know, I would be in the staff room at our old salon, which was very big. There's a lot of people that work there. And, you know, someone would be eating like a gigantic poutine next to me, like slathered in gravy and cheese and whatever. And everyone's like, "Mm, that smells so good. But if you ever sit down and eat four bananas back to back in front of somebody they will lose their goddamn fucking mind they will try to physically stop you from eating that many bananas like they will attack you like you're fucking donkey kong gone wild (laughs) but uh i don't recommend it i don't recommend it if anyone's plant-based please eat protein and fat you don't need to eat 30 bananas a day which was the goal with hclf crazy just fucking crazy I actually have a question. I wanted to go kind of back to the set point theory that we were talking about because it made, it made me think of intermittent fasting and I'm not really sure if like, I, I, I feel very conflicted about it. Like I hear some very positive things from people about it, but then I'm also just like this idea of just like constantly starving yourself sounds very sketchy to me. Um, and then, so when you brought up the set point theory, I was just like, Oh crap. Like, are you essentially doing that to yourself every day that you are actively doing intermittent fasting? Yeah, kind of in a way. So when you think of intermittent fasting in particular for women, for men, it's a little bit more sustainable because they don't have as much hormonal fluctuation. So anytime you eat or restrict food, um, 
or even if you exercise, there are changes in your hormonal profile in your body in terms of what's going on, especially um, with in regards to restriction and deprivation, like your body that will affect your sex hormones a lot. So like estrogen and progesterone and stuff like that. So for women, it's a lot harder because like, because of the, sorry, biological women, I don't know what the right term is. I'm so sorry. I don't want to offend anybody. Anyway, I don't think you will. Like people who were born with uteruses. Um, anyways, if, uh, if you're depriving yourself, like your body is primed to carry a child, whether or not you choose to do that, And so if you're depriving yourself of nutrients, your body's like, okay, like I cannot sustain a pregnancy. So I either need to get more nutrients in me or I need to shut down this function. So the first thing that's going to happen is your body's going to try and seek out more nutrients. So if you're starving yourself, your body's going to be like, okay, let's increase the appetite. Let's get more. So if you're doing intermittent fasting, unless you're actively also like restricting the calories that you're having, uh, apart from just like the window of time that you're eating at, you're probably going to overeat way more than what you'd actually need to eat anyways. So that's, uh, it's a lot harder for women to do than it is for men. And I generally, again, do not recommend it for most people, most fads and trends. I do not recommend. Fair. I mean, yeah, it's always important to like hear who's also a big proponent of whatever it is. Like if Gwyneth Paltrow and Joe Rogan are the people, the number (laughs) one people that you're hearing talking about the, the diet trend you're thinking about partaking in, maybe you might want to talk to somebody else. Yeah. (laughs) I do think um, when it comes to intermittent fasting, like there are some people who kind of eat that way naturally where they're not that hungry during a certain period of time and then they're hungrier later. I think for people like that, it's going to be fine because that's kind of how they already eat anyways. But if you eat like that, you don't really need to apply a system to it. On the other hand, I do think some people might think they eat like that naturally. But when like, you know, when you talk about like neurodivergent people, like I fall into this category, I regularly just forget to eat. And I'm actually hungry, but I just like, I'm so out of tune with my body that I forget to eat. And then, you know, eight hours will go by and like, oh my God, I'm dying right now. Like I haven't eaten anything and I'm starving. And again, like I'll kind of fall into that pattern where I'm like accidentally restricting myself and then later binging on something. Right. Right. Okay. So that also reminded me of something else. There's a, a new thing that I've been seeing pop up on, at least on the Instagram accounts that I follow. Um, a lot of people are talking about intuitive eating. What is that? Yeah, so I have a lot of experience with intuitive eating, primarily because I had an eating disorder when I was younger. And so intuitive eating, I'm a big fan of it. It was created by um, Evelyn Triboli and Elise Resch. So they're researchers from the US and their whole thing is they want people to not diet and to stop, uh, like essentially treat eating disorders. So I was actually put through an intuitive eating program when I was in outpatient treatment for my eating disorder when I was a teenager. So there are a lot of people like kind of use that term and throw it around loosely. And usually people who are criticizing it are people who are really entrenched in diet culture, but also don't actually know what it means. Like they think it just means, Oh, like listen to your body and like eat whatever you want. And like, they're actually like, like I think nine or 10 different principles in terms of like what you should do and like how to structure your approach and your relationship with food. So it's actually, there's a discipline to it and people have to be trained in order to take you through it and coach you through it. So it's not just like eat what you want, whenever you want. It's a little bit more nuanced than that. Yeah. That's so interesting because this is something that I kept seeing um, thrown around on like YouTube. Like I follow a couple like dietitians and stuff on YouTube and like on Instagram and stuff like that. And I I keep hearing this term, but I don't know what it is. And 
automatically your brain wants to assume that, oh, intuitive eating, it means I want cake, I'm going to have cake. But I'm sure it's a lot more nuanced than that, especially if that's something that someone coming from an eating disorder back goes through because they probably don't want cake. They probably don't want to eat at all. Yeah. You know, I was terrified of eating. Um, when I was going through my treatment program, I was terrified of eating. And because I grew up in such like a diet, like household, um, there were a lot of things that my uh, dietitian I was working with would like make me do that. I was like, why is a dietitian making me do this? So like one of the things that like I had never eaten, this is when I was like 17 years old. I had never had like 2% milk ever in my life. Cause like my mom would only buy skim milk. So like my dietitian's like, okay, like what's something you're afraid of eating? And I was like, honestly, like I'm terrified of eating like fruit loops with like 2% milk in it. Cause I think it'll make me fat. And she was like, okay, that's what you're going to do this week. You're going to go home and you're going to eat fruit loops with 2% milk. Wow. How hard was that for you? Um, you know what? It was kind of like nerve wracking for me, but I was like, whatever she told me to do it, I guess I'll go for it. It was very delicious. I'm not going to lie. It was great. Yeah. <laughs> 2% milk. That was my shit. <laughs> you know? I've never tasted that until I was 17 years old, Sam. It oh. was awesome. I did have a little bit of a stomach ache afterwards, but it still tasted really good. <laughs> That's more the fruit loops probably. Than- <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. Your body didn't know what to do with itself. Yeah, it was too excited. It was too happy. It was like, what is this? <laughs> this is celebration on my tongue. <laughs> I really wanted to have you, Maya, on our podcast because I love your Instagram and the stuff that you post. Everyone should follow Maya with a J, not a Y. Maya the Strong. <laughs> uh, we'll, po- we'll post it all over Instagram or anything to so be able to find her easily. But you post really kind of thought-provoking stuff that's not just like, ah! love and light like it it actually always makes me think and question myself but I I always come to like a positive conclusion so first I just want to thank you for that because it's awesome but I remember you posted something about like how you should just have the fucking piece of cake if you want like how all of these because we're so entrenched in diet culture we're always told to like swap out this for that and sometimes you just gotta have it Yeah, I think, again, like I use it, I think a lot, but in a lot of cases, when people, again, are restricting and depriving themselves of something, like they'll end up overeating on more things. So like, say, I know that I've experienced this personally, where like, okay, you know, I really want ice cream, but I'm like, okay, I'm not eating ice cream today, though, I can eat it tomorrow. And then I'll eat like 50 other things. I'll have like a banana, I'll eat a sandwich, I'll eat something else, because like nothing is satisfying that craving. And you know, it's fine. It's okay to have a craving that could be like an emotional response. It could be, you know, something physiological. But if you have a craving, you should just honor it. Because like, it'll usually just keep accumulating uh, until it until you satisfy it and only go away if you satisfy it. So I think again, like, that ties into how we're talking about like, you know, if your appetite is really unregulated, you're going to have all types of cravings all the times. But like, if you're eating a pretty balanced diet, and then you have a craving, like, I think that's an indication that you actually have a genuine craving, and you should just honor that. I think the thing with food and like, I, I, you know, I've struggled with eating disorders a lot of my life and saw it in my family as well. Um, Never got treatment for it, but it's something that's been coming up a lot in my therapy. And I, you know, something that's, I think that's really hard about disordered eating is like, you have to keep eating for the rest of your fucking life, no matter what. And you can never take out that emotional part of it, right? Like you can never take out the nostalgic part of it, like, like comfort fruits from your childhood, you know, whether that's like 
you know, like kind of cheap, like white trash food, a lot of people call it, but they like still love it. It brings them back to like growing up or like if you're East European or what any culture, it's the food of your culture. And you need to, I like, I think it is important to honor that. You know, I think another post you made made me think of that because I'm like, we're not just machines that are meant to be fueled with food. There is, it, it goes deeper, doesn't it? Yeah. Food is social. Food is emotional. Like everybody has something like, you know, think, look at the way that we traditionally eat meals. We eat them together in a group. Right. And, you know, there's also the aspect of like preparing that food. Like there are certain foods that are like so important to me that, you know, I'll always have like an emotional connection to them and I'll always want them. And actually the other thing too, is like when you diet, you kind of remove that emotional aspect, which also actually affects your digestion. So there's research out there that shows that if you have an emotional connection to a food, like either culturally or like through your family or something like that, you're actually going to digest nutrients better from that meal. Wow. Yeah. I think it was, it was done in Scandinavia. It was a study where they took, I think they were taking Japanese women and I think they were in Sweden. So I think they fed them like traditional like Swedish meals. And then like, they were like assessing like the digestive processes after and like how much of the nutrients were actually absorbed. I do not know how they did this. So don't ask me, but the research is there. And then they fed them like traditional food from their culture and that the digestion and the nutrient absorption was better when they were actually eating food that they grew up with and was familiar to them. And they had that emotional relationship too. You know what? I've always wondered why I feel so much better after eating a bag of chips. And I think it's just because I like, I grew up with chips and I just always ate them. And I have this emotional emotional attachment to chips. And I'm just like, I just, you know, it's what I, my body needs. It's able to find nutrients from chips that I don't think most people can. <laughs> chips are your comfort. When, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> when I'm, when I'm at the grocery store and anytime I see the president's choice, white cheddar, mac and cheese, I, <laughs> I see Samantha's face glowing like the fucking baby sun in Teletubbies, like hovering <laughs> over it. I love PC white cheddar mac and cheese. It's I don't care what anybody says. It is the best fucking mac and cheese. And, you know, I think stuff like that, like, yeah, you can make a healthier version of it, but it's not, it's not a food that you eat for the health. And like, not does it, like, does every food, every single thing you consume have to be, completely nutritionally dense and have perfect macros like I it must be it's hard to find that balance but I I guess it has to be there because we you know like if if it evokes that much emotion like it makes me emotional because I know how much Sam loves it and I hate that shit (laughs) absolutely you know it's uh, 100% like that like And, you know, finding that balance is hard and because people always like black and white rules around food are sexy and very easy to understand and to market. And then when you hear like, oh, you know what, there's a lot of gray area with this and you really have to discern for yourself, like what is going on and take like a whole look at the whole picture to figure out what is actually right for you and what's meaningful for you and sustainable and what will actually work. Right. Totally. Well, and also like the idea of, of sitting down at a table and, and eating with people as well. I think it also makes you slow down while you eat too. Right. And that there's a lot of health benefits in that. Like I remember reading or hearing something somewhere right around the time I was first getting into hairdressing that uh, the healthiest way to eat is to eat sitting down. It's actually not good for you to stand up while eating. And I was like, well, shit, that sucks for me because I'm a hairdresser. But I mean, is there any truth to something like that? Like, sitting versus standing while you eat 
I mean, not so much sitting versus standing, but eating slowly for sure, because it actually forces you to slow down and one savor the food, which again, goes back to that. Are you actually enjoying this? Like, I don't know how many times I've eaten something that tasted terrible because I was eating it quickly. And then I was like, wow, that like tasted kind of gross. Like, why did I eat that? Um, and you know, same thing, like it'll actually improve your digestion digestion. Cause when you eat too fast, you consume a lot of air. So you can get gassy and bloated. And then you won't actively be able to perceive like how much you're eating. So when you eat, it takes about 20 minutes for your brain to catch up and process what is going on in your stomach once the food makes it down there. So if you're eating your meal, like really fast, like I've had times where I've eaten a meal in like less than five minutes. I'll be very honest about that. And I'm sure oh, you girl, <laughs> you know, and so if that happens, uh, your brain actually doesn't catch up until 20 minutes after. So you could eat and you're like, Oh my God, I ate so much. Like I feel horrendous now. Right. That actually happened to me once. Uh, well, it's happened to me many, it's happened to me many times. <laughs> was, there, was, once. there was like one time in particular that this happened to me and it was fucking brutal. I went to, um, an all you can eat, uh, sushi and Korean barbecue restaurant and I just like, I kept eating and I kept eating and I kept eating. And the person I was with also is like a big eater and they actually tapped out before me. And I was still like, okay, another order, like keep going, keep going. Cause like, I just didn't feel full. And eventually they were like, I think we should just get the bill. Like, I also don't want to sit here and watch you continue to eat. Um, so, and then, so we like pay for the bill. And the moment I stepped outside of the restaurant, it was like, all of it hit me at once. I couldn't even move. I was in so much physical pain from how much I had just consumed that I was just like, go on without me. I don't know if I'll make it home. I literally, I like had to go into an alleyway and like, like wait for my body to like adjust itself. Cause I thought I was, I thought I was going to puke in the, on the middle, in the middle of college street. Like, I was like, Oh God, what's happening. So yeah, that was my terrible experiment or experience with, uh, eating far too much food. <laughs> Did I learn anything from it? No. Did I go for all you can eat again the next week? Yes. Oh, sorry. I was going to say, you were telling a story. I'm like, is she talking about the time that we went for sushi, like in hair school? <laughs> like, that sounds familiar. And then I'm like, this is a different story because it wasn't on College Street. <laughs> it was like, Sam is like a certain brand of like sushi full uh, in terms of what you experience because she keeps ordering while she's eating and like the food is coming. So it's like, I've never witnessed anything like that. It's very impressive. I'll say that you should probably do like those eating competitions that they do in like Japan. I've contemplated it. I think we can do like a team. I think we yeah. could do like a Gemini placements, like speed eating duo because I too can fucking put it away. Cause it's our jobs, man. We, you know, I, I'm hoping the one thing that comes of this COVID bullshit, no, it's ravaged our industry and yours too, Maya, unfortunately. But one good thing that came of it is we couldn't double book clients anymore. So we actually, myself as a color specialist, like I have to put someone's color on and leave it on. I have to step away. And I can't, I usually I would start another client in that time. So, you know, for years, I've been doing this for 13 years. Uh, and in that time, my lunch breaks have been me shoving a slice of pizza down my fucking gullet as fast as possible while mixing bleach and peeing at the same time. <laughs> you know, like how many cliff bars have you seen me eat while mixing color that from the back pocket of my jeans that have been there since seven in the morning? Like it's terrible. And I'm sure a lot of industries are like that where you're on your feet all day. 
And, you know, I've been in lockdown for over seven months and I'm still eating so fast. Like I would love to slow down um, because I like, yeah, I don't think it's good for you. And I think I do experience, I, I just learned this term and see what you think of it, Maya, uh, fog eating. Fog eating? <laughs> yeah. Have you heard of fog eating? I've, I've never heard that before. What is that? What is the explanation? So apparently fog eating is like when you bring a bag of chips or a snack or whatever meal and you're like on your phone um, or you're watching TV or in my case, you, I struggle with dissociation a lot. So I just, I might not even, cause a lot of the advice is like, just don't have your device. I'm like, I don't need, I am the device. <laughs> so you yeah. kind of zone, you zone out and you eat and you eat and eat and eat and you're not aware of the flavor. You're not really aware of the texture, not aware of the amount. You're not sure if you're full or not. You usually just stop eating when you run out of the food uh, or like someone interrupts you. Yeah. I mean, I think that sounds really similar. It sounds like the same thing. We, I just call it distracted eating where like, like you're not like paying attention really. It's kind of like a second form of like stimulation because I mean, people will do that when they're not actually hungry. You could be hungry too and do that as well. Um, there are strategies though that you can use for that. So like for people who already know they're prone to eating that way, right? This is why like nuanced nutrition is important because this wouldn't be good advice for everybody. But you know, what you can do is like, I do that too sometimes where I'll just like, if I put like a whole plate out, I will eat the whole plate, right? Instead of like mm-hmm. actually like listening to what's going on to my body. So I'll usually put like a little bit less than what I think I want, like in a container. And then, you know, if I want more, I can have more, but I'm just going to have that small portion to start. And like, if I want more, I'm like, hmm, let me think about it. I'm not sure I'll wait. And then, you know, if I still want it after like another 10, 15 minutes, I'll go get it. Right. It's just actually like force yourself to slow down and like, listen, like you don't really give yourself the choice. So, you know, you have the choice of having more if you want it, but you're not just going to have it there right in front of you. And again, that's a strategy that will work for some people and for other people, it's going to be completely useless to tell them to do that. Yeah. And you know, I, I don't know if you were raised like that, but as an immigrant coming from ghetto fucking Europe, you, you're taught to always clean your plate. Oh yeah. Always like leftovers. You know, I'm going through this right now um, because I'm help. I'm coming over and I'm helping my mom, you know, get some healthier food. My mom wants to eat more plant-based. She feels really good when she eats plant-based and she's done it before. Um, but it's not possible with my grandma doing all the cooking. Cause she knows how to cook only like East Europe style. And they, they have too much stuff in their house. And I keep telling my grandma, we're going to have to throw some food out on Saturday. Like use up what you can eat what you can, but we're going to have to throw some stuff out. Cause there's not physically enough room in your pantry and your fridge for me to put good stuff in. We have to take some of the stuff out. And my grandma's having panic attacks every day because to her, like she comes from that scarcity mentality where it's like, you have to use everything up. You have to finish it. And I see that in myself. Because I think a lot of the time when you come from like a lower income situation, or maybe your parents do, like, you feel like throwing out food or wasting food is like such a sin. But I think it's probably just as detrimental to shove it into your body when it doesn't want it or need it anymore. I keep telling myself that. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, that's like a generational trauma thing, right? Like my family's history is like super messed up. So my family's originally, they're like ethnic Serbs from Croatia. And my grandparents were born before World War II and they both uh, like were partisans in the Second World War. And while my dad's like brothers and sisters, some of them were already alive at that point. So they had children. 
and there was like no food, like no resources. And they were very, very poor. Like they're peasants, like they're literally called peasants and they lived in like the village. And then after World War II, they were like relocated to Serbia as refugees. And, you know, they had six kids. They didn't have a lot of money. They didn't have jobs. They had like a little pension for being in the army, but they had a farm and like, that's what they lived off of. They love the food that they grow. So if you have a good growing season, that's fine. If your animals can sustain you, that's fine. But a lot of time they don't have a lot of food. Right. So when you get into like a more industrialized culture where you have access to food all the time, you still have that mindset like oh no there's not enough or like it's wrong for me to get rid of this because you had that experience and that gets handed down regardless again with like that relationship from food that you get from your parents either one like genetically or either just like so socially like through what you learn from your observing your family yeah I mean I I think I can film a TLC documentary about what's going to go down on Saturday because You know, my, my grandparents only moved to Canada uh, four years ago. I lost my grandpa last year. My grandma's well and good and kicking, but I, I do want her to be healthier. She's struggling with her cholesterol and blood sugar. There's a family history of diabetes and death from diabetes down the line. So it's, you know, it is, it is worrying. And, you know, her coming from Ukraine, it was the same thing. Like we come from nothing, absolutely nothing, no money. My, it took my parents seven years to immigrate to Canada. They sold all of their worldly possessions in the world to come here and were able to accumulate $900. <laughs> so, you know, I come from nothing. And my grandparents also, they had a, you know, like a land where they grew fruit and vegetables and stuff like that and bartered people and also lived in the city. Um, but now my grandma's here and goes to Costco with my mom every week. And she still has that like food hoarding, like stocking up mentality, you know, and I get that too. And I I have another friend who grew up very poor here in Canada. Um, And she's the same where, you know, like she's vegan is also sometimes we'll go to like, you know, Kensington market together, like go to whole foods together. And she'll be like, Oh, I love this stuff. I'm going to buy 20 right and I'm like why do you need 20 bitch like just get one and come back for it they always have it but it's that like stock up keep it stock but then if you you know if you can't resist it then you end up eating all of it because it's in your house already yeah absolutely yeah those neural pathways man it takes a while to relearn that (laughs) and unlearn that I also like on the 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 generational thing there's also like a lot of health problems that can also come from, from growing up poor and, and not being able to get all your, the nutrients that you needed when you were younger too. Right. And so then it becomes on top of it, it, it being like an emotional psychological thing. It does actually also manifest as a physical thing later in life because your body didn't get maybe all the nutrients it needed at when you were still developing. Right. And so then there's all these, these health complications that you're having to deal with later on in life as, as well. And like, I don't, know the solution. I'm not saying that there, we should have a solution for it. I just mean like, there's just, there's so many levels to. Yeah. It's so much more complicated than like, Oh, just eat that or this, or just eat that. Like there's again, like emotional, psychological, social, like everything impacts. It's not just like what you're doing right now that will impact your relationship with food and what you do. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. Like we talked about when we had our little meeting about this episode, like we talked about food deserts, right. And like, how privileged it is to not even 
be able to eat healthy and purchase the food, but even have physical access to it, like have it be near you. Can we explain what a food desert is? Because like when we had that meeting, I also realized I didn't know what a food desert means. So just in case there's anybody listening who doesn't know what a food desert is. Um, so food desert essentially is just an area of a city um, where people have to pretty much have access to a car in order to get to a grocery store, usually because um, public transit is not efficient enough in those areas to take them there. So usually that's going to be in a spot that was formerly like more suburban. So a little bit like not in the core of the city, more like in a residential area where people historically had cars, but like, you know, housing is less expensive there. So oftentimes you'll find either people who are lower income or like new immigrants usually coming into Canada who live in these areas who one do not have the resources similar to like how Anya was explaining with her parents and they had like $900 and like that's what you got um, and they often cannot afford to have a car to go to these places so then you know it's not accessible for them to actually physically get to a grocery store and so many people at least who work in my industry in the fitness industry don't have that life experience because there is a lot of privilege with com- that comes with being able to have access to that stuff. And so when they hear people like, oh, like, you know, it's kind of hard for me to get fruits and vegetables because like, I don't live near a grocery store. They're like, oh, but there's food everywhere. You can grab it here. And it's like, well, no, you actually cannot. And then on the converse side of that, usually where there are food deserts, there are what's called a food swamp. So then you have these areas that are also because that lack of food, healthy food has been, um, observed they put up all these fast food restaurants and so now you have all these like highly processed foods which again like in moderation is fine but you don't want it to be the bulk of what you're eating and you know that's what's accessible to them so it makes it even harder right yeah I think it's something that we we really forget and also like accessibility right like not everyone has an able body that's able to drag a fucking big ass bag of sweet potatoes and cabbage and you know, like my diet is mostly vegetables, fruit and vegetables. And like, I am hauling this shit, fam. I don't have a car. Like I am hauling this shit. Like I go to the fruit and veggie stand every other day and I'm carrying like four bags just to feed two people. And I get a fruit and de- uh, veg delivery box every other week. Like I still have frozen stuff. It's like, it's so much work. So for somebody who doesn't have the, the physical means, the, the, um, the car, the, the, the money, like it's just out of question. So when this fucking like Gwyneth Paltrow goop advice is given to them, like, it just makes you check out. You're like, well, that's not for me. I'm just going to eat my SpaghettiOs. Oh yeah. It's so out of touch. And uh, I don't know if you heard recently about like Gwyneth Paltrow. I think she tweeted something where she was like, Oh, this, or no, it was in a Vogue interview. Sorry. Vogue interviewed her. And I'm sure you've probably seen it based off of what your faces are doing right now. Um, but she was just like, Oh, you know, this pandemic is so hard. I broke down and I ate a piece of bread. <laughs> like that's, what's hard to you about this. You ate a piece of bread. I'm like, that sounds like a good day. Like, come on. <laughs> one just one piece yeah she's like I even had a glass of wine (laughs) yeah just so out of touch and then it just like adds to the the dialogue that exists within like like the celebrity world and but just like what's what how other people observe them and they're like well I want to be like them so I have to eat like them and like there's like there is still a level of responsibility that you have when you have such a large platform to like not perpetuate really fucked up ways of talking about things like food. (laughs) Yeah. I hate one. 
Oh God. <laughs> Me too. She's just so useless. She's just a, such a useless human being that's that I'm always hearing about. And I'm like, you have contributed nothing. You're not a good actress. Like, you know, like the Royal Tenenbaum, someone, you could have been cast as someone else. I wouldn't fucking care. Like, and you're just annoying and you make women and just people in general feel bad about themselves. And like, I don't know, man, she looks hungry. She doesn't look happy. Okay. I never get like a radiating joy from her, you know? She needs to eat more bread. For real. (laughs) Yeah. Maybe it would be better if she did eat more bread, you know, it would give her some serotonin. She'll be a little bit happier. I don't know. Um, it's also wild too, because she popularizes all these like really like out there things relating to like health and wellness that are like so dangerous, but also like, I'm pretty sure she, she was the person, her and Madonna, they're the people who brought like Tracy Anderson into the spotlight. And she was like their celebrity trainer. And she is like the, I don't know if you know who she is, but we know who she is in the fitness industry. She's very popular. She's a very slim, uh, blonde woman, like most people who are popular in the fitness industry. And, um, very lean. And her thing is like, Oh, I never, I don't think any woman should lift a weight heavier than like five pounds or something like that. And that was like her, her statement. And so, so many, for a long time, like her stuff was being popularized in like women's health and fitness magazines or in like Cosmo and stuff like that. And they're like, Oh, you only need three pound dumbbells. You don't need to lift anything heavier than that. It's like, if you have a kid, your kid is heavier than three pounds. Like you need I'm to just thinking even, even <laughs> on your groceries, like how is she supposed to carry her groceries home? If she's only ever training with five pound dumbbells. Yeah, exactly. Like your strength training is not about like, it's what you do for your life. Like, what do you do in your day-to-day life that you actually need to support? Like, it's not about the weight, like what is going on in your life that you actually need to prepare your body to be able to do. Yeah, it's so true. Um, and you lift some fucking heavy shit, Maya. Holy crap. If you guys look at her Instagram, so I'm like, ah! I'm like, I can carry a watermelon or two home, but that is next level. Um, and you train with like, a some kind of European coach or something, don't you? Oh my God. I love my coach. Um, so I started training for Olympic weightlifting, which is like different. I used to do like more powerlifting style training before, which is just like, there's a few lifts that you do. Um, and whatever else, but then I switched to Olympic weightlifting, which I'm not going to the Olympics just to clarify, but it's just the name of the sport. I get that a lot. Um, but my coach is a world champion from Bulgaria. So he immigrated to Canada and I like adore them. So he's our, he's our head coach. His son is our second coach and his wife like runs their business. So when we go to our training sessions, like they're all there together, it's like a family. Like, I don't know. I just absolutely adore them. Like they're my favorite people. It's so much fun. Like, yeah. And what, that's so cool. I love that. It's like a family affair and we've got that Euro connection and everyone's getting strong. Like that makes me so happy. Um, Would you say that everybody needs to lift weights? Uh, Yeah, I think everybody should be lifting weights. Like, a hundred percent. If it, if you absolutely hate it and it like distresses you out to the point where you're having maybe like an anxiety attack, thinking about it, maybe not, but it would still benefit you if you could overcome that and get to the point to use it. Absolutely. Because especially for women, there's so many reasons why. And then again, it, it could be about the way that you look, if that's something that's important to you, but there are so many benefits in terms of like one, your hormonal health, your metabolism, your bone health. Women are so prone to getting osteoporosis, especially after you hit menopause, you can actually increase your bone density by strength training. And I've had, I've had a postmenopausal client that I've trained. Um, and she was like a phenomenal, she was, uh, I think like 55 when I started training her 
And she had the, only the function of one lung working because she caught pneumonia several times when she was younger. And she was Whoa. like deadlifting 200 pounds and she would go for bone scans every year. And, you know, it's much harder to build bone density after you've gone through menopause too, but her bone density was still increasing with every, every year that we trained together. That's incredible. That's amazing. That's amazing, Maya. That's so cool. I can't wait to fucking be making bank again and hire you to make me like so ripped. Yeah. (laughs) How would you recommend to somebody to just get, you know, get started, you know, without the keto, without the juice cleanse, without the like boot camp and stuff like that? Like what, what are some things like even like for me to say to my mom who is right now, like working from home every day grandma's cooking her fucking fried cheese for lunch you know she can't resist it she has a binging restricting background like you know it's all shaky and she just kind of wants to start something but everything feels intimidating like where what would you say would be like a good starting point so I think you know a lot of people get really overwhelmed because they try to do too much too quickly I would say like at most focus on like one thing from fitness and one thing from nutrition and try both of those things. If that's too much, just go with one. Um, so like, say, you know, a lot of people, when they start changing their nutrition, they're like, I'm going to take this out. But I think most people would probably do better if they're focused on what they could add in before they start subtracting things out of their diet. Right. So like, okay, if you know that you, you know, you eat a lot of bread and maybe meat and stuff like that, but you don't eat a lot of vegetables, instead of taking the bread and meat out, maybe start adding like a fruit in at each meal or a vegetable in at each meal, or even one meal, if that's too much, right? Something like that. So you really want to break it down into a very doable, but simple opportunity, something that you can work on. Right. And the same thing with exercise, like movement in general is going to be good for you. If strength training is too much, or you don't have access to it, start with something more simple than that. Like it could be, I'm going to do five minutes of stretching while I'm watching TV at home at night. Right. Yeah. Just little baby steps. I think we forget and they make a big difference. Mm-hmm. I, um, I started, I, I always dabble in online courses through Coursera and, uh, during the lockdown, the second lockdown, I signed up for a, a course called, uh, hacking exercise. And it was taught by, um, a couple kinesiology professors from McMaster or McGill. I can't remember. I know the university started with an M though. One thing that I remember them mentioning was that they suggested that, um, just going for a seven minute jog like every day or every other day or that sort of thing would make like studies have shown that it makes a huge difference in your cardiovascular health. Um, just, just seven minutes. And because the whole course was all about basically figuring out ways for people to just squeeze in little bits of exercise into their life so that they could be live healthier lives. That was kind of why they, they obviously were discussing. And I just found that very interesting because like, I have asthma and my cardio is, is absolute garbage. And I'm very intimidated by doing cardio, um, exercising. They said, you know, just do a seven minute jog. I was like, I can, I can handle a seven minute jog. Like that's no problem. And then obviously, you know, the longer you do these things for the more you, you build up your endurance. And so you can, you know, then your seven minute jogs, a 10 minute jog, then your 10 minute jogs, a 20 minute jog. Then all of a sudden you're running, you know, 10, 10, 15, 25 K fucking whenever you want. And I I think that's really the thing that I think more people need to hear is like, you know, start small. Like I even like, I was having a conversation with a girlfriend a while ago where we were talking about strength training. And I, um, I was talking about how much I used to squat 
And I was, I couldn't remember how much it was. So I was like doing the math out loud. I'm like, well, the bar's 45 and then the plates, this and whatever. And then my girlfriend was like, the bar's 45. And I was like, yeah, bro, the bar's 45 pounds. And she was like, oh my God, that makes so much sense. And I was like, what? She's like, I've never been able to squat more than just the bar. And I always felt so bad about it, but I couldn't figure out why. And I was like, yeah, dude, the bar is 45 pounds. And it's like, it's like little things like that, that people don't get told that like they, they, you know, we, we beat ourselves up because we're like, oh, I'm too weak. I'm, I'm too this, I'm too that. And, and really it's like, no, there's, you know, you, you start small and you just need somebody to explain it a little bit for you. And, and then it helps you build your confidence so that you can keep going. Yeah, absolutely. And I think too, like people also get caught up on like, oh, like I can't do that. But like everybody has their natural gifts. Like I'm not a natural runner. Like running is so hard for me, especially distance running. I can sprint like hell for like a very short period of time. And then I need to rest like four minutes, but like jogging, like I literally feel like I'm dying when I'm doing it, but I'm someone who's naturally strong. So I gravitate towards strength training. Um, and you know, that's my gift, but there are other areas that I can work on too. And so sometimes people, depending on what they start off in, they'll be like, Oh, like I just suck at fitness and working out because I suck at this thing. It's like, well, you may have just not found like the thing that you're good at yet, but that doesn't mean you shouldn't work on those other things too. Right. Like it's all about progression. Like the things that I'm naturally good at, I'm going to enjoy, but there are other things that I can work on too, that I'm not great at that. I need a little bit more practice for, and I need to like ease into it. Right. And, you know, what you're saying about like the seven minute jog too, the thing that's good about that is like, you know, when a lot of people start off with something like running, they're like, oh, like I need to jog for like 20 minutes. I'm going to go for a 20 minute run. I'm like, well, your joints and your tissues aren't even prepared for that. So if you do that right away, you might actually hurt yourself and then you'll be discouraged because you're like, oh, like I sprained my ankle or like, you know, I have a strain in like my Achilles or my calf now. And it's like, I can't run. So you went hard from the get go. And then now you're like, oh, you can't do it. So it's almost better to start with less and then, you know, see how much you can do over time than it is just try and start with doing the most again. Like, it's just, you got to ease into it, make it as easy for yourself as possible. Totally. This is something I wish I, you know, was told years ago. Um, as someone who's not like naturally very athletic, I've always struggled with my weight. I've been, you know, like morbidly obese before obese. I've been, I've been every dress size between a six and a 22 throughout my life. And I'm 32 years old and I've fluxed through it. And it's, I've always had a very difficult relationship with my body. And I was always so hard on myself. It's like, I'm not athletic. I'm not athletic. I can't do anything. And like a couple years ago, um, I did an elimination diet and I cut out wheat, not telling everybody else to do that. But for me, it fucking saved my life. I got rid of so much inflammation in my body. My fingers became smaller. Like I just felt like a different person and I've always enjoyed walking, but I actually tried to run and I started running and realized I freaking love it. And I can run no problem. I, I can distance run. I, I can endurance run. Like I, like at one point was running, you know, 10, 12 K almost every other day through this lockdown. Um, but I know I need to do that fucking strength training. Cause I'm not getting any stronger from the running. Like my legs are, there's certain parts, but like my ass is like a pancake. Like I need to not to body shame myself, but I was just looking at myself. I'm like, I still feel weak. I just feel like I have a lot of um, stamina. If that yeah. makes sense. Like, right. Does that make sense? Like I had uh, a trainer years ago, um, who ghosted me and he, when he met, he was like, you're flexible. He's like, you have stamina. He's like, but you're flaccid. <laughs> he called you flaccid? 
What? I've literally only ever described one thing as flaccid, and I'm sure you can imagine what it is. I've literally never heard of describing anything else as flaccid. Lo and behold. <laughs> well, I mean, like, it makes sense. It's not hard. Like, <laughs> I guess it works. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh. Homeboy called me flaccid, and he was right. You know, he fucking hit the nail on the head because uh, he was like, this is why you need to do this so you can build your body to be stronger because you do hair all day. You're going to wreck yourself. Unless you build some muscle to literally hold up your five foot ten body that's doing manual labor all day. And I've always found lifting weights super intimidating. It does give me anxiety. Um, and on my own, I always end up hurting myself because I don't have good form. I'm always zoned out, dissociated, or anxious. So it's not good for me. But I challenged myself about a month ago to do 15 minutes of like just body weight strength training every day, high intensity interval training just in my bedroom. And I'm on day 26. I just finished day 26 today. And my body composition has changed so much. Like it's freaking crazy. I'm like not trying to weigh myself or anything. I think I did lose some weight, but when I look at myself in the mirror, I'm like, there's parts of me that look so different 15 minutes a day. And there's breaks in between as well. Whereas before I was running 10, 12 kilometers and like, it was good for my anxiety. It was good for my mental health. That's still something that I'm always going to do, but I kind of looked the same. I wasn't getting any like results and I wasn't getting it stronger. Like my posture wasn't improving. So literally 15 minutes a day, I don't even think about it. And I was so intimidated because I thought I would have to go to the gym and like power lift for an hour and do all this stuff. You really, really, really don't have to. And I still don't own, because it's impossible to find like free weights now online or order them anywhere. So like one of the modifications, I do have to lift something because I can't do like tricep dips. I hurt myself. So I've been lifting this giant crystal I have. (laughs) (laughs) Heavy objects is all you need. Right? Like you just got to make do. So if anybody's in my boat where they can't, you know, they can do cardio, but can't do strength and they feel like, oh, I can't lift a weight. Don't like maybe don't lift it for now. I would love to what like when you train me why one day I would love for you to get me to lift heavy shit because you could be like, Oh no, 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 hold on. Let's, let's hold that differently. But when I do it on my own, I'm like, you know, there's moments where I, I have had moments where I'm like, Oh, there goes my fucking sciatic nerve. <laughs> yeah. I think again, like it's interesting. Cause like I obviously coach people for a living. So like I have an eye that's like trained to see like where the errors are and a lot of people. And you know, I do want people to have independence and, feel autonomous in their training and to feel empowered. So I'm never going to discourage someone from pursuing something, but working with a coach is so much different than working on your own. Like even for myself, like I'm a coach and I work with a coach because like, you know, it's easier for me to have someone look at what I'm doing and tell me like what correction I need to make rather than for me to film myself and go back and like watch and be like, okay, like I need to fix this. Like I can't do that, but it's way more time consuming. And then if you don't like, I have that knowledge, so I can do that. But a lot of people don't have that knowledge. Like they could see that there's something wrong, but they don't necessarily know how to fix it or like what cue might work to address that. Right. And everybody has different learning styles too. So like, you know, someone who's not a visual learner, they could watch that video and like not see the issue at all. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Like even with a trainer, there was still one moment where he turned away and I picked up the fucking sandbag the wrong way. And I threw my entire back out and he was like, turn as he was turning out, he's like, no. 
<laughs> because in my mind, what my mind does, because I don't really enjoy it that much. My brain is like, my neurodivergent brain is like, let's get this done as quickly as fucking possible and move on. Mm-hmm. It's like, let's just get her done and get it over with. And I'm not paying attention to what I'm actually doing. Yeah. So I think that is where it's helpful to have a coach and someone like really supervise you. Um, so I took a course a few years ago. So this is more interesting because of the stuff I've learned about like ADHD more recently. But a few years ago, I took a course called neurotyping, um, which is for fitness. And again, it's theoretical. So it's very hard to actually like confirm whether or not this is true. But there's a trainer from Quebec. He's worked with lots of professional athletes. And so he models his training around trying to make it most suitable for people's like neurological profile and like, you know, what neurotransmitters are most sensitive to how you determine that is really um, questionable and stuff like that. But I use that system with my clients. And so for someone like you, like I would give them a workout that has like more variation in it. Um, usually a bit like higher in terms of like intensity with like shorter rest in that perspective, but probably not as heavy, but of course you have to progress to that. You can't just start with that. Like you need to, again, ease in, but I find it so fascinating because like, I know what type of training that I enjoy doing, what I respond to. And usually people are going to get the best result again from doing the type of training that they enjoy. Not to say you shouldn't do other types of training, but you know, the one that you'll do consistently and that you're going to put the most effort into doing and want to do it correctly is going to be the one that's going to help you the most. And, you know, that's, that's the interesting thing, right? Is like, there is no one program for everybody. Like I, since I've started like kind of, you know, tapping into my health recently, like the algorithm on Instagram, which I'm on all fucking day on my eight accounts, you know, like the algorithm is, it has gone bananas and it it's giving me all these like, you know, workout programs with these different in from these different like influencer coaches who are just like, they're like, get, get abs like me, like 30 day ab challenge. And it's like, for somebody who is not predisposed to having any abs, like they're now they're thinking that if they pay $300 for this month workout, they're going to get them like, it's so deceptive. Oh yeah. And you know, that comes a lot to like goal setting. Like one, one issue with marketing is like, people will see someone and be like, Oh, well, like if this program worked for this person, it's going to make me like that. I'm like, yeah, my coach is a world record holder and world champion in weightlifting, but just because I train with him doesn't mean that I'm going to be that. Right. And so it's so easy to believe that, especially when it comes to abs, because we're all fed this idea that, you know, if you work hard enough, you can have whatever body you want. And it's like, well, it may not actually be suitable or healthy for your body type. Like there's so much variance, like abs are not necessarily a sign of health for one person that could just be what their body naturally looks like. And they could be healthy at that level of leanness, but for somebody else, it could be totally unhealthy. Um, so that's the marketing side of it. And then, you know, when it comes to goal setting, like if you look at it personally, have you ever had abs in your life before? Not to just like, if that's something that's really important to you and you want to pursue that at like, you know, full tilt, then that's again, your choice to do that. But like, you know, you have to manage your expectation. If that's actually something that's realistic for you, you can try and achieve it, but are you going to be heartbroken that you went through all this effort and like discouraged if you don't achieve it? right? Like you really have to enjoy the process to want to pursue something like that. And if you hate every minute of it on the way there, you're going to be so resentful when you don't get it. Yeah, it's so true. Cause like, I feel like everything now is about having a really big juicy ass and like the flattest stomach ever and getting rid of your hip dips, right? Yeah, like, do you about getting the Brazilian butt lift <laughs> and it's a surgery. It's not real. Yeah. It's, it's the surgery. 
you know, if someone wants to have surgery again, that's their choice, but you know, there's a lot of stuff you're not going to be able to achieve with exercise. Like, well, and how would, how would somebody know what's an attainable goal for their body? Um, Mm. you know, it's going to come down, like, look at your starting point. What are you doing? And I don't like, for me, a lot of the clients I work with, they don't really set like hard goals again, because of wherever they're at with their life. They're just like, okay, like they're more qualitative goals. Like I want to feel this, I want to see this change, but they're not so specific. So I like that approach, uh, when it comes to, you know, setting goals for yourself is like, you know, what's a, like a broad goal that you want to achieve. And then if you have something super specific, like, you know, I want to lose like 20 pounds or something. Okay. Well, have you been 20 pounds lighter in your life before? Or is this like something that's totally new? It may be doable. It might not be, you know, it totally depends. Like you have to look at the history, what someone's done in the past, what things have worked for them, what has not worked for them. And, you know, I would say if someone has like had a history where they've lost weight and gained weight, I would count that as something not necessarily working for them unless there was like an extenuating circumstance that like caused them to lose that result. Because like, again, you really have to consider sustainability. And like, you know, if I did something and I couldn't sustain the result from that, that's not the right thing for me to do. Right. That makes sense. I remember when I was in my early 20s, uh, you know, I was uh, overweight and obese all through my childhood and teens. And then in my early 20s, started going to the gym and just, you know, started eating healthier and made some changes. And I, I lost a significant amount of weight. And I remember at first when the weight started to come off, I, I felt really good because I had more energy. Like my body wasn't carrying, you know, 200 plus pounds around, like it just felt lighter and I felt better and clothes fit better. And then I got to a point where, you know, I got to a pretty low weight, but I didn't like the body that I saw because like I had like fantasized this completely different other body, like future body for myself. And I thought that I would just have it and I'd step into it and I'd feel amazing, but it was just my own body, but smaller, (laughs) you know, like (laughs) some parts different, like, you know, some parts more or whatever, but like, I didn't have this hourglass figure that I thought I would have with like, you know, big boobs and a nice ass and like a tiny waist. I was like, Oh, okay. So now I don't like my body now. And he just like, I don't know. It like triggered a lot of dysmorphia for me because I thought that that was my solution to everything was losing. Like, cause I hit that number on the scale and I stepped off and I looked in the mirror and I was like, meh, what's yeah. it all for? <laughs> yeah. There's that's so common where people think that they're going to, if I achieve this and I'm going to get exactly what I want. And I'm like, well, no, not necessarily. Like when I was younger, I wanted to look like Nicole Scherzinger from the pussycat dolls. And I was like, I want that body. And so I like lost like 70 pounds and I was a teenager and I didn't look like that. Like I'm literally like, I joke that I'm like built like a back truck because like I have a lot of muscle and I carry like body fat pretty easily. Um, and I don't have a problem with that, but like, even when I was lean, like my shape is still the same. Like <laughs> it didn't change. <laughs> like it's still the same thing. It is what it is. Right. Yeah, because you think like fitness, I feel like is so targeted to certain body areas, right? Like now it's the butt before it was like having a tiny waist or whatever, like it's so compartmentalized that you imagine that you're gonna you like build your body out of these separate parts and you don't see yourself for who you are anymore. Like I remember when I started losing weight, the very first place I lost weight from was my breast. I went from a C to an A cup. And I was devastated because I was like, well, now I look like shit and I have no titty. (laughs) But we're like, we're all so hard on ourselves because at the end of the day, it's like, bitch, but now you can walk up a flight of stairs. How about that? 
Yeah, exactly. Well, that it falls into uh, self-objectification, of course, right? And, and it was also like, there's just so many trends in how bodies should look that it's like, you have the same body forever. And it's like, maybe in the 90s, you had the it body, but now in the 2020s, you don't. I just think it's important for, I mean, people, I guess, to, to remember that, that like body, for some reason, there are just body, like body types that become trends and you may or may not ever fit into one or you may fit into one and that might not last that long. And I also feel like it's not always appropriate for me to talk about things like this, just because I definitely know that I have a lot of privileges with the type of body that I have. But I definitely like I, you know, I, I see it in, in people and um, there's just always going to be something that's unattainable. And uh, it, it. But that's how they make money off of us. Right. That's how they make yeah. fucking money off of us, because if everybody was all of a sudden happy with their body, then there'd be no money to be made selling all these programs and products and, you know, protocols and shit like we'd all just be happy. And in that vein, I feel like at the same time, we're flooded with this message of like practicing body positivity, where it's that's not always attainable for everybody. Like something that I read about recently, I don't I would love to hear what you think of this, Maya, is like body neutrality, where you just kind of like I've been trying to practice this instead of because it's hard for me to like love my body straight up. And I think a lot of people are in that. And and I think it's hard for a lot of people. That's why we be sold all these body positivity things now too. It's another unattainable goal. So for me, it's more important to be like, instead of being like, oh, my legs aren't toned enough. I'm like, oh, my legs are strong. They hold me up all day. Like thinking about what my body does in a practical way, not just how it looks and just being okay with it and being grateful that I have it and I'm able to do what I can do. Yeah, I think body neutrality is a great place for a lot of people to start. Like, I think like body positivity and body love can be hard for a lot of people, especially if they have like not so much like a straight size body or one that's like really like free of criticism from like culture and society, right? Where it like kind of fits into either like the trend or something that's always kind of like socially acceptable. Um, so it can be really hard to get to the point where you're like, oh, like I like myself. And that's even more difficult too, especially if you're from a marginalized group or, you're, you know, like, you know, you're black or indigenous and stuff like that. And now you also have to consider things like skin tone and how that plays into like how you feel about your body too. And like, also like how muscular you are. Right. Cause like, we all know that like black women are vilified and like, you know, criticized if they carry like more muscle and stuff like that, or if they don't fit into that, like classic, like body archetype body type that's very eurocentric and also like one socially conditioned um all of these things are socially conditioned because like if you go to like places where there's not a lot of access to media and stuff like that and you're not constantly seeing like messages where things are super polished and like oh this is like the way that women look and stuff like that this is the representation of like the woman's body people don't actually care not as obsessed about their bodies as like they are in cultures where you're constantly seeing that messaging so it's something that can be unlearned but again to get back to the point like it's easier to get to a point where you're like you know what I'm okay with my body it does good things for me I don't need to love how I look but I also don't need to be beautiful or like you know, sexy to be valued in this world, like contribute other things that are broader than that. But again, that's so hard when you're being objectified for your body and you're like, oh, like if you're a woman, you have to be sexy. You have to look like this. You know, you have to have a fat 
ass, you have to have abs. And it's like, okay, like, am I just body parts? Like, am I not a human being? So I think for a lot of people, again, like appreciating the function of your body can be very helpful rather than being like, oh, you know what? I like my butt. It's fat. Like, you know, that could be helpful. You know, I like my butt and that's fine, but it's not really something that's super empowering for me um, to like, you know, love myself. But there are other things too that I like about myself that are my character. And so it's really like, you know, you're not just a body, you're a whole person. I'm glad you said that we objectify ourselves. I never thought of it that way because we objectify everybody else, but we see ourselves more than anybody else. We're constantly perceiving ourselves in the mirror and whatever. And just by looking down and so, yeah, I'm like, yeah, we do fucking objectify ourselves. It's so, so, so true. Yeah. And and yeah, probably more than anybody else. Right. You brought up the the point with the body neutrality of like acknowledging like the things that your body is, is capable of and doing. And I think, to go back to the strength training thing, I think that that's another point that I think is a, is a good way to, to approach strength training, especially for people who are afraid of looking too muscular or feel like they shouldn't be doing it or that sort of thing. When you approach strength training as like a, like you said earlier, preparing your body for your daily tasks. Um, well, I, uh, I sustained a, a, pretty bad back injury a few years ago. And, uh, I, I couldn't do anything for, uh, at least the first six months after the injury. Um, but it took, it took me, I think close to a year to be able to get back into the gym. The issue was, is I had a bulging disc in my lower spine. Nobody could figure out what was going on for a while. And the only thing that was really giving me any kind of pain relief was strength training. Like the more I was building up my muscle, the more it was helping me be able to like function on a day-to-day basis and not live with this like chronic pain. And um, I just think that like, that's also a really good thing for people to, to also kind of focus on is like strength. Like it, it doesn't like working out doesn't have to be superficial. It doesn't have to be shallow. It really it should be looked at as something that's, it's just another way of taking care of your body. I have this weird thing where I'm like, I need to be physically capable enough to take care of another human being. I don't know why I think like this, but like, for me, I'm always concerned, like, well, if something happens to my partner and I'm not physically capable of even lifting them, how am I going to help them? (laughs) That is some, that is some cancer moon shit. (laughs) Oh. As, a, as a fellow cancer moon, you're like, I know I have to do things for myself, but everybody else, I must save them. How <laughs> <Right? laughs> will I take care of you if I can't even carry you? But it, it, and actually like knowing um, Sam's birth chart, like off, off my head, like I know it off my heart because I use it in my astrology homework all the time. And like, because you've got this you know, Gemini sun, but you've got this Aries rising. That's very physical, right? Like very physical and direct of like a little aggressive. Um, so you've got this force coming out of you, your cancer moon propels it. Like it propels your fitness to always include others as well, because that empathy from your cancer moon, like trickles over that Aries rising. And with your chaotic Gemini energy as well, it's like, I got to take care of you. I got to be able to carry you on my back. I got to be able to pull you out if you're drowning. And then looking at Maya's chart, you know, she's a Gemini sun is up, but she's got that Libra, right? So she's like, I want everybody to be balanced. I want everybody that Leo rising is like, I want, she's very diplomatic, right? Like even when we're like, keto fucking sucks. And Maya's like, 
do it if you want. I just strongly suggest, right? So she's got that with the weightlifting and stuff, like you've got that intensity and that like commitment from your um from your Scorpio moon, right? It's like another fellow water sign. So, but you you're using that Libra rising to kind of distribute your knowledge and your strength equally for everyone else. Where Sam's like, I need all the strength. <laughs> I'll take care of you bitches (laughs) and and me as an Aquarius son who's not detached to this planet with two heavy cancer placements I'm just not here and I'm crying so that's why I need you guys (laughs) don't worry we will take care of you exactly um so when if so going in let's say you're going into a workout right you're going to the gym or whatever if would you suggest to somebody that they should do either strength training or cardio training during one workout session, or can they combine the two? Would you suggest people combine the two? From an exercise science standpoint, let's just break it down. Like weight training is anaerobic training. And uh, I'm, I'm, I'm assuming the cardio you're meaning is like aerobic steady state where you're kind of maintaining your heart rate at the same rate the whole time. So you're tapping into different energy systems. There are ways to uh, work on cardio in the anaerobic work, but generally you want to pair anaerobic work with anaerobic work and aerobic work with itself. Now that's theoretically, if someone only has time to do those things together, do it together. But the best results are going to come from separating them because they have different hormonal responses in the body and they will counteract each other. So like, say if I want to do strength training and cardio, the best option, if I need to do them on the same day is to do one in the morning and one, like at least six hours later separate. So that way they don't impede each other. But if you need to do both and you cannot separate them, do both. You know, it's one thing you have to understand exercise science, but then there's also practicality in terms of what people can actually manage and do. And so again, you need that gray area to decipher. It's still going to be better for them to do both rather than to like omit one altogether. So, you know, you really have to find like what makes sense. If you can do them separately, that's fantastic. You're going to get a better result from that. But if you have to do them together, do them together. And would you say you should do strength training first or cardio first if you are combining them in a workout? So in general, it's going to depend on what your goal is. If you have a specific goal. So like, say, um, like if I already use Anya as an example, like I know running is really important to her. And like, let's say she wanted to train for running to do like a 10 K or something like that. And she wanted to do it as like fast as possible. I would get her to do her running first and then her strength training afterwards, because, you know, we want the better result from her running. So I'm not going to make her run when she's already fatigued. Right. So if someone has a strength goal or they have like goals about like putting on muscle, then I'm going to make them do that strength work first and then the cardio after. So, so if I was training to rob a bank, I would do strength training first and then my cardio after because I need to be able to break into the bank and then run away, right? Yeah, you know, it's just exercise science. What, what yeah. are you doing? <laughs> what order are you doing them in and how important are they? <laughs> well, that's. Well, it's so funny. And another great example of why like individualized fitness is so important because I was always told that you do your strength training first, no matter what. And actually, I I love that you just told me that because I like running first thing in the morning uh, on an empty stomach because I wake up with really high cortisol levels. So I wake up like the Energizer Bunny every morning between five and 6am. Like I literally sprint out of bed. So it makes more sense for me, I guess, to just do it and just go for a run and then do my strength stuff like 
couple hours after like or in the evening but I because I like someone told me that you always do your weight or like anything with weights or strength training you have to do that first I've literally just stopped running because I've been doing this challenge so (laughs) tomorrow I'm gonna go for a fucking run uh, in the morning and then at like 2 or 3 p.m I'm gonna do my 15 minute workout bam problem solved changing lives already (laughs) (laughs) yeah because someone told me that's all it's in your head right because like there's so much esoteric knowledge with fitness that we're just not receiving that you know that is bestowed upon you (laughs) yeah and you know I think again it like anything you have to discern like who is saying the message and where is it coming from because like sometimes people are saying things because they want you to like believe in their service and their product and they want you to buy it. Right. So like someone who's like a bodybuilder is going to be like, yeah, you need to do strength training first, no matter what, like they're a bodybuilder, that's their priority. And they want you to believe that too. So they can be very dogmatic and very, um, convincing in terms of how they deliver that message, but it's not necessarily correct. And then also does that person have like the knowledge base to, actually have like a good well-formed opinion on that there are people out there who are specialized and have a really great base of general knowledge but the more specialized you are the harder like it is to be general in the way that you think about things right so you know for me I'm always someone who's very open-minded and if you can logically explain something to me I have no issue with that and that's what I try to do with people like I don't want to tell them what to do but I want to give them the information so they can discern what is right for them right love that I love that I think that's what a lot of people need. (laughs) One thing I didn't even think about until very, very recently, like within the last couple months, and this is a question that's specific uh, to people with uteruses, is how your menstrual cycle can impact your ability to train and how you may want to adjust the way you work out throughout your cycle. I'm sure you've probably talked about this with other people before, but like, what, what exactly is, I guess, the theory or the science behind that? Like basically due to like the, the, diff, the fluctuating of your hormones, I guess, is what is why you would want to say, focus more on like a yoga style workout than, than like, a, you know, a, a, a running workout or anything like that. Or like, so I think, yeah, it absolutely is beneficial um, to periodize your training with your menstrual cycle. So that just means like you're focusing on different things more intensely during like week to week in terms of what you can do. That is something that is unfortunately under-researched for women because when they do um, like most testing in medicine and health and fitness, they do it on men because their hormones are stable. So women are actually really underrepresented in research, but there's a lot of Um, there are a lot of coaches out there and there is some research to suggest that like, you know, modifying your training to your cycle is important. So like certain points in your cycle, your estrogen is going to be higher or lower, your progesterone is going to be higher or lower. And you'd want to modify that. So like for me, if I'm training, like I know that the two weeks, like before I get my period and everyone's different, but I know the two weeks before I get my period, my training is usually a mess. And like my energy levels drop and it's way harder. But as soon as my period starts, like I know if I want to go for a max effort lift, I'll probably hit it because your pain tolerance is going to be higher during that period too. So you can actually push yourself harder. Um, With that said, there's also going to be points where, you know, like in that two week period, like leading up, it's going to be better for you to focus on things that are more endurance based or cardio based or flexibility based Um, leading up to that, just because of the energy levels and what's going on in your body, like those energy systems are going to shift to support that better. Um, Whereas like the first two weeks, it'd be better to do like more strength work. Now, with that said, 
you know, when you have like an athlete or like someone like myself, I train for something very specific. It doesn't really matter. I have to train those things no matter what state I'm in, but I could like modify the reps and the type of work that I'm doing for those specific movements. So it's more suitable to what phase I am in my cycle. But, you know, I think it really depends on the individual because no matter what, like I'm still going to show up and train and do what I have to do. But like, you know, it could be beneficial for a lot of people. Uh, I noticed that at certain times of my period, I'm more likely to cry when I'm working out. Oh yeah. (laughs) Do you get people crying at you all the time being a trainer? All the time. Like it's so normal (laughs) to have people cry during their sessions. Like, I think there's just like such a release, like, you know, people could be like, holding stuff in and like, you know, when you're exercising, like you're stimulating your nervous system, if there's something in there, it's going to come out. I've literally cried during my training sessions, like with my coach and like, you know, it's so emotional too, right. Depending on what you're doing. And like a lot of my teammates have cried during sessions and not because like our coach is like an asshole, like he's wonderful, but like, you know, it's just the state that you're in, like your nervous system is excited and you know, anything can happen. That makes me feel so much better about myself. I just thought it was my sensitive ass crying at the gym, crying at doing yo- at the yoga studio, always crying. Uh, but yeah, I definitely noticed it like right before my period, if I'm working out, all this stuff starts coming up and uh, I just turn into like this, like I'll like be doing downward dog, like tears trickling down. <laughs> I, I generally like consider myself like I'm not someone who cries a lot. Um, not very often, but like, I notice sometimes like my eyes will water and I'm like, is this crying or is like, is this my eye watering? <laughs> and it's like, I think this is crying. It's, it's crying. As a cancer moon, I confirm it is crying. Imagine Anya, imagine living a life where you're not even sure if you're crying or not. <laughs> I don't know what that's like. I'm literally always crying. <laughs> the only time I'm not being sure was like once I was swimming underwater and I was crying and I'm like, am I actually crying? But I was like, yeah, I am because I'm sad. <laughs> do, do people with like Scorpio moons cry? Because I do think I'm very emotional and like I can be very like emotionally explosive, but like I don't uh when I do cry, like if I'm crying and I know for sure I'm crying, it's like really bad, but like also it doesn't last that long. <laughs> Well, you know what? I, I was reading an astrology book recently and this comparison will always stick to me. A Scorpio is a cancer in a leather jacket. Well, I've heard <laughs> that before. I love that. <laughs> Don't you love that? And because you, you know, when you look at the water signs, you've got cancer being this crab that's, you know, it's guarded. It's got that hard shell and all the soft stuff inside, but it's still, it scurries away. It still hides. It's still kind of like it's guarded and it feels threatened very easily. And it's very, very sensitive. Whereas a Scorpio has fucking poison lodged in its tail and it can kill you. Right. So cancer will always just be a bit more like emotionally, like manipulative, not always in a bad way, but they're going to use their emotional strength and sensitivity to retaliate. Whereas a cancer will like, use anything possible to strike because they're all about that intensity because they're harboring that like poison you know and and it's not saying that they're like a poisonous person but it's you you turn your negative experiences into a weapon that gives you strength if that makes sense so whereas a cancer will will cry and they'll hide and and they'll become detached and isolated and they'll give you mixed messages and be passive aggressive a scorpio will most of the time just be like like they'll just sting you. Right. So, and, and that approach works towards yourself too. Right. Again, we objectify ourselves. We, we treat ourselves astrologically as we do others. Right. So 
the way that like I would, you know, deny something and kind of cry about it, but then not cry about it and then come back to it and be all confused. You'll just approach it head on and be like, bitch, we cry and let's go boom. And then just like in and out with like utmost intensity. I like that explanation. Oh, I got you. I'm glad I could answer something in this chat. <laughs> That's all I got. I have to be the most esoteric bitch in the Zoom call. <laughs> uh, one thing I actually, I wanted to go back to talking about food for a second, actually, because there was something that we discussed in our, our meeting that I feel like is really valuable for other people to know in case they don't, because for me, I also had this, this thought, the idea of like, organic food versus non-organic food, frozen food versus fresh food versus canned food, those sorts of things. Because I think there's a lot of stigma attached to, you know, canned food or frozen food or or um, non-organic food. In the same sense, there's also a lot of privilege associated with eating fresh organic food all the time, right? And I think a lot of people try to say that you know, you, we should all be eating as much fresh organic food as possible because that's the healthiest. Um, but it, that's not necessarily true. Right. Like I remember you saying something about like, I have a hard time, like I'll buy fresh food for fresh fruit or vegetables for myself, but I'm just one person and I can't eat it all before it goes bad. Um, so for me, I'm like, I feel like I'm, I'm, I'm guilty of a lot of food waste but it's literally just because I can't eat this much food before it expires. And so perhaps frozen fruit, fruit and vegetables are kind of the way I should be going. And I won't necessarily lose nutritional value from it. Yeah. I mean, I mean, like the first thing to address, like the reason why people feel that way has a lot to do with classism, right? Because like, you know, buying canned and frozen foods is, um, usually something that's more accessible to lower income people. So like you're saying, it's a privilege to be able to buy fresh fruit. Like there's no denying it. Like, yeah, sometimes you can find like a good deal on fruit, but like our fruit is still being like um, imported from like Brazil and like Mexico. Like it's still going to be expensive because we have to transport it here like to a certain extent. So like, you know, you can buy frozen things and canned things. And usually they're actually going to have more nutritional value than something that's fresh because they're going to be preserved at like peak ripeness rather than like on a shelf, like decaying a little bit every day. So they're going to be a bit more nutritious too. So it's a really big misconception that like fresh is better. Like fresh is good. Like if you can eat stuff raw that, you know, good for you, but like, you're not going to lose out if you're eating something that's canned or frozen and same thing with organic, like organics, a big misconception again, one, because our environment is so contaminated with like um, pesticides and fertilizers, but at the same time, for people who do, or like organic farmers, which is fine. Like, I, you know, again, I support people who want to do that for environmental reasons, but at the same time, like someone could have an organic label on something and they're just replacing it with like a different type of pesticide or fertilizer, but it's one that fall, falls under the umbrella of being organic. So it doesn't mean that it doesn't have those things in it. And sometimes those things can be just as dangerous or more dangerous for us or damaging to our environment. So I don't know, pick your battles. Like for me, it's not worth it to buy organic food. Like I don't see the added benefit of doing it. Like I care about the environment, but there's other ways that I can care about the environment too. So buying groceries from Dollarama, like, like I, for me, I find most of the stuff there is already like, you know, pickled or canned or whatever, but like you can still get nutritious food from Dollarama and those kinds of places. Can you not like, 
Yeah. I mean, if you, uh, if you needed to, for sure. Absolutely. And you know, it's interesting that you bring up pickles because like pickling is one of the oldest forms of food preservation. It's like freezing something, you know, our cult, like my culture, and I'm sure Ukrainian culture as well, like pickles are the jam, like, you know, you have pickled beets, like pickled cucumbers, like pickled carrots, like pickle every single vegetable and they'll eat it year round. Right. Because we have winter. So we can't like eat fresh stuff all the time. Do you guys pickle tomatoes? Uh, I think they do. Uh, my family does not, but I do think it's done. Like I like, we're really big on peppers. Like peppers are mm. huge in terms of pickling and stuff like that and preserving and cabbage, of course. Pickled oh, yeah. tomato. They are so fucking good. They're so salty and you just like take it out of a jar. They're pickled in like a three or four liter jar. Usually you get them at the Russian store. I'm watering so much right now. I'm like, tell me more about pickled tomatoes. <laughs> Bro. I'm going to get us a three liter jar and we're going to eat it in the staff room, like lady in the tramp, like, <laughs> like just this like big, cause they're so juicy at that point And so salty that they're almost broken down by the salt. So you just take the tomato and you're like, it like goes through your teeth and it's like a hit of salt. It's so it good. It sounds like eating an oyster. Kind of like, it just like, like comes right out of the shell and just straight. I mean, yeah, you wouldn't know. Right. Sorry. <laughs> your description reminded me of eating an oyster. I, I, I'll believe it. But yeah, sorry, Maya, you were saying I got excited about the pickles. You got me riled up. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think too, like, again, you know, that's a very traditional form of like cooking. And they you know this reminds me of something else that we had talked about before, where it's like a lot of people, again, because like nutrition and fitness is so like Eurocentric or like white in terms of the people who are delivering the messages and also based on like diet culture that they're like, oh, like these traditional foods are so unhealthy and it's like well actually when I look at the traditional foods that we have in Serbia like the ones that people ate like before like industrialization and stuff like that and like globalism that happened like the diet was very healthy like you know it's full of like beans and vegetables and stuff like that preserves like meat we didn't have the means to produce a lot of meat so like meat was more used for flavoring your food than it's used as being like an entree like centerpiece of the meal and you know it's not as much as people think that it is like you know if you look at like a cabbage roll it's really like either fresh or pickled cabbage with like rice and meat inside of it. So you literally have vegetable carbs, meat, and like fat, like it has everything you need in one meal. Cabbage rolls are so good. That's a common dish, right? Like we do so many different types of stuffed vegetables. We stuff zucchinis, we stuff peppers, like, you know, it's just, you know, what's done. Like the sadama is just like a, whatever vegetable you have, fill it with like meat and rice. And, you know, it's not that much meat that's in there because we didn't have a lot of meat. Like, and, you know, again, like other cultures too, like when we talk about like veganism, like we were talking um, before, people are like, oh, like, you know, I'm, I'm vegan. I'm going to eat like this rice and I'm going to have some beans on top of it. But other cultures have been eating variations of rice and beans for like thousands of years. So true. Well, you know, it's something that people say all the time. Well, I've never had vegan food. And I'm like, you have, you've had a PB and J you've had rice and beans. Like you, you've had this stuff. You just, it, it hasn't been branded to you as vegan food by a white person with a cafe and yeah i think every every culture has good healthy foods but it's just like white bloggers you know have to always like make these food swaps and make it their own thing there's a big problem in veganism of white 
bloggers, white vegan bloggers taking ethnic recipes and not even saying where they come from and claiming that it's their own and taking all the flavor, all the fat, all the good stuff out of them, loading them with way too many fucking expensive carbs, you know, pounds of kale and just presenting it as this bland whitewash thing with no credit to anybody. And, you know, someone who's like from that country is like, ah, excuse me. And they're like, no, 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 that's too no, that's not healthy. That's not no. And it's 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 really hard to look at. It makes me cringe. It makes me not want to associate with people like that. There's um there's an account on Instagram that I follow and I absolutely love it. It's called Doof Magazine. And they did a whole thing where they talked about how, and it wasn't specifically about vegan bloggers, but they talked about how all these white chefs are basically taking um all these like authentic uh asian recipes and that sort of thing and they're bastardizing them and they're you know they're creating these whatever whether they're trying to do like a fusion recipe or they're trying to do something else but they just like totally fuck shit up and then they've also actually i wanted to actually talk to you about this maya they've all they also talk about the stigma around um like asian ingredients and that sort of thing and one thing that they talk about is msg Oh. I'm pretty sure you did a post about MSG recently too. And I loved it because I recently started learning that like all of the flack that MSG gets is actually rooted in racism. Yeah. So one MSG is delicious. You should absolutely add it to your food. It is wonderful. It's still sodium. So you don't want to add a ton of it to your food, but it will essentially like enhance every, any savory dish you're making. It's going to bring out that flavor more. It's a flavor enhancer. So, um, yeah, the stigma against MSG is like rooted in racism. So essentially when it's actually from America. So when you look back, like with the like anti anti Asian racism that happened in the U S and like originated there, like a long time ago, uh, with like Asian migration during like San Francisco in San Francisco with like mining and stuff in California, um, they'd start opening Asian restaurants and serving food and they season the food with MSG as well, because again, it's delicious. Why wouldn't you? And so because people like white people were going there and they're like, Oh, like, you know, they're probably like serving us dog or something like that's the idea that they have is horrible um they'll be like oh like i get sick when i eat chinese food like you know it's so bad for me and it's like oh they'll say it's the msg but it's just that the fact that they're racist (laughs) like it has nothing to do with the food itself because like you know you could run a study where you have people sitting in a room and you know feed them potato chips and like oh well do you have like a headache right now And they'll be like, oh, no, I feel great. But I get a headache when I eat Chinese food because of the MSG. I'm like, well, there's more MSG in this potato chip than what's in your Chinese food. So what's really going on here? And it's like, oh, no, you're actually just like holding these racist feelings that you don't even know that you have. And that's exactly what it is. And uh, I do want to give credit because I learned that from... um, David Chang's show Ugly Delicious because he had like a segment where he was talking about that. And that was the first time that I heard heard of that. And I'm like, that makes so, so much sense because like, Honestly, like I'm so like disconnected from a lot of stuff, like ideas that people have that I like my parents would feed me like Chinese food all the time when I was a kid. And I like love it. Like I never felt horrible eating it. It's like so happy to me. I like this stuff's great. And then when people are like, oh, like I feel sick when I eat this. I'm like, why? Like, it's so good. <laughs> like, what is wrong with you? Um, and then I watched that. And I'm like, oh, this makes so much sense now. It's like, yeah, people will have this idea because they think that, you know it's just racism. Like that's all that it is. It's so like, I can't even say it more simply than that. That's what it is. Good old xenophobia. Well, I was guilty of this because, um, for all birthdays, all occasions growing up, we went to Chinese buffets for, cause it's cheap. Right. And our parents would drop us all off and we'd wreak havoc and like have food fights and shit. But 
me knowing now that I'm severely lactose intolerant and my body hates gluten and I have uh, binging tendencies, I would go fucking crazy at the Chinese buffet, eat 45 fucking spring rolls and then eat all the ice cream. And then I'd be like exploding and dying and be like, it's all that MSG. It's all yeah. that. And all my, friends, <laughs> my friends would be like, it's the MSG. I'm like, you're right. It's, and it's like, no, bitch, you ate 8,000 calories and of foods that your body cannot digest and now you're trying to walk home in the heat. Yeah. <laughs> it's not MSG. <laughs> yeah. It's so true. And um, it's interesting because like, obviously we'll see that in like, you know, racism exists in like every culture, but like in Serbian culture too, like people will be like, oh yeah, like, you know, the Chinese, like Chinese food's so bad for you. You get so sick after you eat it because of the MSG. But like one of the main food seasonings we have, I don't know if you have it in uh, Ukraine as well too, but it's called Vegeta. A little blue jar <laughs> and it has like a little chef on it. And, uh, anyways, it's just like mixed vegetables, mixed, mixed vegetables and herbs and MSG. That's all that it is. And it's like, we literally add it to every single food. Like every dish is made with it. <laughs> it's like, but you eat that. So if you eat this, you're probably not the MSG that's giving you an issue. <laughs> it's so funny. Cause I added you on Instagram and I was like, oh, she served me. I'm like, where's the Vegeta post? I was like scrolling. I'm like, where's the Vegeta <laughs> I don't know. I think I have posted about it before because every time I do, people are like, oh, like Dragon Ball Z. And I'm like, I don't know. Like, I've never watched it, but I know there's a character named like Vegeta on it or like I don't Vegeta. This MSG is over 9,000. <laughs> that was only for Sam. Sorry. We did grow up watching Dragon Ball Z. That that makes so much sense. Um, yeah, I've known not about MSG for a while. I think the only known side effect of eating a lot of MSG is you accumulate a lot of earwax. <laughs> that could be bullshit, but I don't know. Dave eats a lot of chips and he has really waxy ears. So that's my only case study. I mean, I think like, again, with MSG, like it's still sodium. So if you have too much of it, it will probably increase your blood pressure and your water retention a little bit, but those are temporary. So as soon as you stop eating it or if you eat less of it, it'll go down. That makes sense. Wow. What an episode guys. We covered so much stuff. Like it's great having two Geminis on the show. Cause I feel like I'm hanging out with four people, <laughs> <laughs> which is illegal. So. <laughs> I feel like a smooth criminal right now. Um, do you guys have any anything else to wrap up this episode? The only thing I'm curious about is for you to explain Noom to us because it's still such a vague marketing scheme. And I know that you did it, but if it's too long, because I know we've only got a couple minutes left. So if it's too long, we can always talk about this another time. But that's the only thing I can think of. But I know we've only got like two minutes left. So we could always leave it as a teaser for another episode I mean I'd love to have you back Maya on another episode where we can get into more like diet culture eating disorders like the you know more psychological stuff I feel like this was a very general thing and if you guys enjoy this episode and you wouldn't mind coming back we could like dig even deeper and maybe ask specific questions that everybody has um and I can post an insta story talking about Noom as well and kind of my experience because I did the two-week free trial but it's a fucking diet for anybody considering it's a fucking diet it's calorie deprivation and it makes you weigh yourself every day so if you have any kind of disordered eating it will trigger the fuck out of you I actually ended up writing them a letter and saying I'm not 
gonna, you know, they offered me like a discount to continue the program. And I was like, I never want to do this because you triggered the fuck out of my eating disorder. And I'm much happier doing my own thing and just like counting macros and just, you know, doing it the right way. Um, there's no, there's no miracle. And Noom is, is not one. It's really fucking expensive. It's a very pretty app. Good knowledge there, but it's a lot of, it's the same thing. It's, you know, emperor's new, new clothes type of shit. But for anybody starting their fitness journey, what, what are some, um, words of motivation, Maya, let's get these people motivated. Uh, it's going to get so philosophical or like so cliche, but the journey of a thousand miles starts with one step. So start with one thing and keep at it. I love that. Love that. Love you as well. Thank you so much for coming on and spending all this time with us. Love you guys. Thank you so much. This was so fun. And uh, everybody needs to follow Maya, Maya the Strong on Instagram. And uh, if you want Maya back, let us know what you'd like us to talk about next. Maybe you can be like our nutrition and uh, wellness panel. (laughs) I'm happy to come back anytime. Amazing. Okay, everybody. Well, good luck going through these retrogrades. Take care of yourselves and we will see you on the next episode. Bye. Bye.